I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. Um, the Topography of Terror um, Memorial is now one of the most important Holocaust um, memorial sites in Germany. It is a very large and well-funded institution and that also has sort of an umbrella function. So it also takes care of some other sites and it has a networking function, um, not just within the Federal Republic, but, but beyond uh, transnationally as well. And it really started, though, as uh, a citizens initiative and literally by people ha- uh, organizing a protest action in 1985. Um, to literally dig up the past. So they went to this site, uh, which was uh, the former uh, headquarters of the Gestapo and other ministries of the Nazi state in central Berlin, although at the time it was right by the Berlin Wall. So in West Berlin, it was peripheral, but now it's in the center of Berlin. And, you know, they took shovels and I mean, it was a bit of a, um, a bit of a performative act, but they did uh, in effect push the Berlin government to then... Um, uh, conduct archaeological research there, and they dug up um, the walls of those buildings, you know, the foundations of those buildings. So the citizen action, which is very much a you know grassroots left-wing um, initiative um, that was still working against uh, sort of mainstream narrative at the time, <clears throat> was very much op- oppositional at the time. Uh, led ultimately to this this very large and ins- important institution, and you know a lot of the people who were at that day on 1985 uh, at n- 1985 who were who were digging, then later became important institutional actors. So this sort of development from civil society grassroots action to institutional clout uh, is very well represented in this in the site. My name is Jenny Wüstenbach. I'm a professor of history and memory studies at Nottingham Trent University in the United Kingdom. And I'm also the um, founding co-president of the Memory Studies Association. Um, And I, well, I work on memory activism, as, as will be clear in the book that we're discussing today. Jenny Wüstenberg is the co-editor of Decommemoration, Removing Statues and Renaming Places, Agency and Transnational Memory Politics and the Rutledge Handbook of Memory Activism with Yifat Gutmann. We'll be talking with her today about her book, Civil Society and Memory in Postwar Germany. Jenny, thanks for taking time for this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you for having me. Now, you mentioned in the beginning of your book that uh, you have a family connection to this past. Was that uh, a key motivator for taking on this this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um so on the one hand, I think, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by memory politics in general because my family history is, is not black and white in this department as, as it probably is the case for most people. So, um, on my mother's side, um, she grew up in Northern Germany with a family that was very much, uh, supportive of the Nazi regime and, in fact, her mother um, died in childbirth, giving birth to her fifth son, um, believing that she needed to supply a lot of soldiers um, to Hitler. And um, my mother really grappled with this history all her life um, and, you know, was was part of the 1968 student movement um, 
you know, and, and of course, talk to me about it as well. But it was a very personal issue for her having this this family of of supporters of of Nazism. Um, and on my mother's, uh, on my father's side, rather, um, my grandfather um, fled from uh, Nazi Germany in 1933 when his own father, so my great grandfather, was murdered on the second of May 1933 when the trade unions were. Um, were uh, taken over by the Nazis, which in German is called Gleichschaltung. Um, so, so my great grandfather had been murdered, and my grandfather was tipped off, so he was able to get out. Um, and he was a social democrat, and he fled uh, ultimately to Great Britain. Um, but he was then deported by the British government on a ship called the Denira and um, in an internment camp in Australia. So, you know, I have both this history of support and resistance to the Nazi regime in my family. And, you know, I, I guess I was always fascinated by how families and societies deal with that. And on top of that, I grew up in a family, um, as I mentioned, both both my parents were active in the 1968 student movement. And in the 80s, you know, I, I was taken to many uh, demonstrations and uh, was was generally part of the sort of new left social movement scene as a kid. Uh, that that is very much the underpinning for the kinds of groups that I study in this book. So it felt, you know, the people I was talking to felt quite familiar to me in a way. So one of the things that you mentioned at the start is that there's this misconception that uh, uh, World War II comes to an end and uh, the Germans really want to forget the past. And I had that misconception too. I mean, I thought that uh, this is a country that buries itself in work to, to forget the past. And, and the German economic miracle in part is driven <laughs> by this, by this energy and, and forgetting is, is part of it. And you mentioned that there was a lot of remembering that was going on, but it, it, it was happening in terms of particular groups. So what, what kinds of memory work and who, who was doing the remembering uh, after the war? Yeah, I think this misconception, it obviously doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, it comes because we tend to have a particular connotation associated with um, memory work, right? We we think of it as the kind of memory work that helps us work through the past honestly and face up to our historical sins, right? And, and we tend to not see so much of the memory work that goes on that is maybe, um, you know... Uh, not, uh, you know, doesn't work in favor of democracy or reconciliation or facing up to the past, um, or is maintaining the status quo, right? So, so a lot of the, um, so there was a, a huge amount of civil society work happening as soon as the, um, the allies in the different zones of occupation allowed. And then with the foundation of the two German states, um, there was an incredible amount, amount of memorialization happening um, in relation to the war experience. So the biggest, uh, most most sustained effort here was the, um, the memorialization of uh, former German territories and the experience of the Vertriebenen, so the expellees, the ethnic Germans who had been um, either expelled or had fled from territories in Eastern Europe. And so these markers, there were thousands literally all over West Germany. 
in East Germany, the, these kinds of uh, activities were, were mostly not allowed by the East German government. But in West Germany, there really were many, many, and they were they took the form of um, remembering the suffering that had happened as part of this um, forced migration, but also uh, you know remembering the places that that had been lost um, that were no longer German territory, and. Um, I mean, this is this is supported by all the civil society activity uh, that that happened in all the German states, um, the sort of Heimat uh, cultivation, right? The loss of the of these um, of the cultures of East Eastern Europe, German centric Eastern Europe. Um, uh, there were there were little museums and so on, but but also memorials, and there were uh, twin partnerships between cities um, and no longer German cities, right? Um, so there was really a lot going on, and there were a lot of um, there was a lot of remembrance of um, the German dead uh, as a result of Allied bombing campaigns, and also the experience of POWs. Um, and these groups so, had real political clout as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, they had their own political party um, in the early days, and you know some of the most prominent leaders in the government, uh, and and you know sort of big. Um, uh, or, or important leaders in, in various areas of society in the early Federal Republic were themselves Vertriebene, Expellees. Uh, and yeah, they had, they had a lot of clout uh, and they had a lot of support from the population. And this despite the fact that, uh, Expellees had a lot of experience, a lot of problems integrating into West German society, right? They experienced a lot of hostility from the Germans. Um, as as uh, you know, all newcomers, I guess, do. So um, there was a lot of hostility towards migrants, despite the fact that they were ethnic Germans. And so, yeah, there there was really no forgetting of this past, but it was very selective, right? Um, none of these groups wanted to commemorate uh, why these people were expelled from Eastern Europe, right? The causes of the war were usually not mentioned as part of that commemoration. Um, and so there was no taking of responsibility as part of that. <clears throat> and, uh, but I think it's important to, to see that these efforts were civil society work and that there was, you know, very, very uh, vibrant in a way, uh, memory work going on, but it was in line with what the government was doing. So it was not oppositional to, uh, the conservative government at the time. And of course, you know, conservative politicians very much cultivated um, these kinds of groups. Uh, CDU politicians would be present at the gatherings of expelli organizations, basically as a matter of course. That's interesting because I interviewed uh, uh, Akiko Takanaka on um, uh, the memory of the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan, and she makes the case that uh, that catering to war victims war victims was key to to the rise of the LDP, which dominated Japanese politics for, you know, for decades after the war. So mm. we have something similar happening in Germany. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is obviously the, the dilemma of how do you build a democratic state without a democratic society to underpin it, right? And without democratic leaders or very few <laughs> democratic leaders, right? Uh, and bureaucrats and so forth. So um, it would have been quite risky probably not to cultivate this kind of sentiment in society um, and risk not having support for the new democratic uh, institutions. And I think Adnawa and his government was quite aware of this. 
So Adenauer, uh, the first uh, chancellor, sets up institutions that are key to to, to developing democratic values, right? Uh, but uh, those values are 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 not in place for a long time, right? That uh, um, and this this was the point that Susan Neiman made in the first interview I had is that the Germans really felt like they were the, the world's the, the wars the greatest victims right and uh, um, it took a long time for that to change mm. yeah and in this context you know the Holocaust and, and the victims of the Holocaust pretty much get lumped in with all other war victims so you have a lot of memorials at this time saying you know to the victims of war and dictatorship without specifying who we're talking about um, so you can't necessarily say that this is complete uh, denial of what had happened, uh, but it but it was not a taking of responsibility. And the only people who were demanding taking responsibility and really shining a spotlight on, you know, there were specific victims here that we need to remember, and the fault and, and the responsibility lies with the German population, was initially with survivor organizations, Holocaust survivor organizations, uh, which very early on, you know, <laughs> from 1945 onwards, um, put up memorials and demanded facing up to this past. But they were a small minority and they were not heard or funded in any significant way by the German state. Okay. And this is your point that you can have representative uh, uh, memory work that's democratic in that it's representative of what the what the majority believes uh, uh, and uh, and what was important to the majority were their experiences of having lived through bombed out cities or being expelled from where they'd lived before um, or experiences of being POWs, uh, but that those memories aren't necessarily tied to democratic values, um, normative forms of, of memory. Uh, and uh, it takes a long time for German memory to become to be more in sync with with democratic values that's a decades long process yeah so i in the book throughout I, I sort of try to take apart what we mean by um a democratic form of remembrance you know what does it mean to or how does how does memory um help us think about democracy and um one of the things i try to think about is well you know yes we we tend to think that Holocaust remembrance, um, you know, will save us. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion about this recently, um, that Holocaust remembrance will help us, you know, obviously not repeat um, similar um, atrocities in the future, uh, that it will help us heal, right? That, that, that remembering the Holocaust in and of itself will help us develop democratic values, um, like tolerance, like, you know, protection for, for weaker members of societies, um, by um, thinking about um, inclusion and so forth, um, value for difference, right? All of these kinds of things. But uh, the question I was I was sort of grappling with is what happens when you know those values they might be represented by uh, something that we're trying to remember, but if a majority of the population aren't actually buying into these kinds of uh, memorializations, then we have a real problem, right? And so. Um, we have to think through the, what the right balance is between um, promoting democratic values through remembrance 
and making sure that they're uh, sort of bought into by the majority. And then I think there's a third factor that I talk a lot about, which is um, to what extent these kinds of memories become legitimated through state power, right? When when the state picks up um, uh, activism from below and and funds it and supports it and makes it official, uh, that of course has a huge effect. And and these three things, right? Normative um, remembrance, um, so the values that we support through memory, the representational uh, or the, the representative nature of this whether it's supported by the majority and state power, these three factors are all mediated through memory activism and through civil society action, right? Um, and so that's that's kind of the the balance I'm I'm sort of uh, shining a spotlight on throughout the book, and it, and it shifts in various ways. So if you look at East Germany, uh, civil society initiatives are there, but they're stifled like early on. Hmm. Yeah, so we, I mean, early on uh, in the Soviet zone of occupation and then in the early uh, German Democratic Republic, uh, there are, of course, impulses, similar impulses to West Germany. So we have actually the same groups um, emerging, uh, groups of survivors um, trying to commemorate uh, the Holocaust, but also um, people who'd been um, expelled, which uh, they're they're usually called Aussiedler or Übersiedler in uh, in the GDR. And um, but we see very early on that the GDR state is um, basically squashing these these um, attempts to commemorate because they suggest an independent uh, civil society, right? Uh, uh, action that is not controlled by the state and the state uh, is, is you know extremely um repressive at this point it's, it's still during stalinism and it can't have any of that um so interesting that's interesting because some of the groups especially the survivor groups are of course not really um in conflict with the memory narrative that the gdr state is putting forward right the gdr is celebrating uh, communist resistance in particular to the nazi state uh, and some of these groups are quite left wing and they're, they're actually <laughs> not opposed, right, to this kind of memory. Um, but, but it is, um, a, um, it would have been a, a locus for independent action, which the GDR state, uh, felt like it needed to suppress. So very early on, these kinds of things get outlawed and, um, the GDR state puts forward this very, uh, legit- legitimating narrative around, um, you know that it's really the success, successor state, um, or, or because it's a state that promotes um, the memory of resistance to Nazism and anti-fascism, uh, it can't really be held culpable for the crimes of the Nazis, right? It isn't a direct successor to the Nazi state; it's it's, it's opposite. And of course, the building of the Berlin Wall then becomes wrapped up in that, in as a as a um, you know protection against the the fascists that are represented by, by the West. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, isn't it true that East Germany, I mean, East Germany is actually committing more resources to preserving sites of, 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 of memory connected to the Nazi past. I mean, these, you mentioned there are three large concentration camps that are, that get memorialized that there are, there, there are staffs or students that are being taken out to these places. Are there resources that it's devoting to these places long before, uh, West Germany, uh, follow suit 
Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it, of course, gets used in a very particular way and it, it serves propaganda. So um, these, especially Buchenwald, uh, has a very particular role in um, kind of shaping of GDR citizens, right, with with uh, the youth, the uh, socialist youth, um, always being taken there and having to um, swear an oath of allegiance uh, at that site. Um, so it gets instrumentalized in that way. And of course, a huge part of the history of those sites, uh, which is that it, they were also used by the Stalinist regime um, in the 1950s uh, and where thousands of people died at, in those places is, of course, completely silenced and, and is not talked about until after the wall comes down. So because those sites were so um, <clears throat> uh, egregiously instrumentalized, you know, despite all the money that was pumped into them and the big role that this narrative played in the GDR, it really actually was quite a problem that had to be um, uh, faced up to after 1989. Okay, so if you but if you look at West Germany again, and you start off uh, for several decades after the war with the memory emphasis being on the experience of victimization, um, and then eventually you end up by the 1980s with uh, memory being centered on the experience of being basically the perpetrator. Uh, there's an evolution. Uh, uh, how, uh, you mentioned of how values change, uh, uh, organizations that, uh, that help bring about this change, uh, uh, generational factors. Uh, there, there are a variety of things that are, that are happening uh, going back to, well, really back to the very beginning, I guess you could argue that these uh, these uh, uh, victims groups uh, are, are, are preserving these memory sites uh, and think of other organizations later on. Could you talk about you know, what is this long evolution uh, of, of, of memory work that, that's, that's, that's happening that paves the way for, for, for this change so that memory uh, in Germany becomes more aligned with democratic values? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to say that um, this is a complex process, right? And because we are, you know, the big difference between the GDR and the FRG are that we're talking about a dictatorship versus uh, a, a flawed and a, an evolving, but nevertheless, a, a democracy. Right? And so early on, of course, we in the Federal Republic, we have voices that are calling for uh, remembrance of the Holocaust. First, as I said, the victims' organizations, um, but also um, various intellectuals and politicians. And there are a few sites that uh, are memorialized by the state early on. So Bergen-Belsen, for example, and then the Memorial to German Resistance in Berlin, they do receive uh, support from the state and some official sort of endorsement, but nothing like what we're seeing today, right? Um, so it's you know, I think it's important to say that we're not talking about complete silence here. And of course, um, Adenauer, the Adenauer government did early on also acknowledge to the Israeli government, um, you know, the culpability of the German state. So, uh, you know, it, it's not complete silence, but we we're seeing sort of a gradual increase in voices, first individual voices, then more civic voices, um, for example, with the creation of Aktion Sühnezeichen, Action Reconciliation Service for Peace in the late 1950s, which is a, a Christian organization that works for reconciliation and atonement on the part of Germans for the Holocaust and is a very, very important organization 
up to this day. Um, so, you know, we're seeing even in the 1950s, um, cultural and political moves sort of in the right direction. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people tend to see 1968, the student revolution as a turning point. And I have, have argued against that, that idea. Because even though um, that was obviously important politically and the students demanded, you know, that, that um, Germans faced up to their past, it was a very sort of ideological and, in a way, abstract demand, right? Um, maybe it wasn't abstract for a lot of people who, who then started speaking to their family members about what they might have been doing during the Nazi period and who they supported. But uh, on a political level, it didn't actually lead too much concrete uh, memory work, right? We, we actually don't see a lot of um, initiatives for Holocaust uh, commemoration and a sort of un- honest confrontation with the Holocaust in the 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, when we do start seeing that, this is what I argue is, is sort of where the big shift comes, and that is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, where we have a whole bunch of developments, um, one of which is the increased uh, civil society mobilization that my book talks about, um, but others uh, are, um, you know, the, for example, the the screening of uh, the TV series Holocaust that was seen by by a huge number of people in West Germany, um, and generational change, technological change, right, a shift from sort of the post war um, post war generation, but also the shift away from being focused on mostly economic development, sort of post-industrial phase, um, which is, of course, a global development. Um, And what I really focus on is a sort of um, post-1968, you know, milieu in a way, where where after um, the 1968ers had basically failed with their student revolution, um, you know, some of this generation then radicalized, right, and went underground a few a uh, very small minority, of course, but most most of those who had been involved in the student movement or who came shortly after, who began studying, for example, at the universities that just had seen this this student mobilization, uh, most of these people um, then organized themselves in lots of different kinds of new social movements, right? So we're talking about the women's movement, the peace movement, the environmental movement, the anti-authoritarian childcare movement. So lots of smaller groups and projects in every city, right? They were much more dispersed, uh, not as ideological, much more focused on practical change. And one of these movements that was actually quite a bit smaller than most of the ones I just mentioned was the history workshop movement. And uh, I don't know if you want me to go into that. uh, Well, I think what interested me... Um, because, well, you have society that's changing, right? So people get interested in local history. So I think that's your your main point, the history workshop movie. It's all about local histories, but uh, uh, and and particularly the the, the period of of, uh, of national socialism. Um, and but this interest is part of a larger memory boom, a larger interest in in uh, in, in that past. Uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, and you mentioned it's often triggered by, by certain events, uh, that, that kind of, that encourage people to react. There's almost like a, a sentiment of, of outrage, of n- neglect, right? You, and you mentioned that often the, the trigger events are anniversaries. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I mean, if you imagine, you know, what what happened after 1968 is that you you have a sort of the creation of this sort of social movement scene where there's just uh, interest and um, and passion for being involved um, in all kinds of different areas, and then when something happens like there uh, a city celebrates a, an, an anniversary or um, there's a media event like Richard von Weizsäcker gives a speech in front of the German Bundestag uh, in 1985. You know, when you have a trigger event like that, progressives on the left react by uh, demanding more more um, uh, deep engagement with the past, right, rather than staying on the surface. So when a city celebrates uh, its, I don't know, uh, 1200 year history um, and does so in a very um, you know unreflective way then there are people in place who will say actually we want to do this differently right and then a group forms on that basis or a group forms in in, um, in response to um, a shopping mall being built and um, the, there's a plan to tear down a site that was important for the local um, Nazi past like a, a Gestapo headquarters or, or something along those lines. So usually these these dynamics are very localized, um, but cumulatively you have this happening all over the Federal Republic and in West Berlin, and so it actually becomes a movement, right? And so it's it's very bottom up. Um, that means that these groups are quite different in their focuses. So yes, there's a lot of focus on um, the history of National Socialism, but some groups also focus on working class history on on women's history, on environmental history, right? It always depends on what's important locally. Um, but the approach that these groups take is, is quite um, coherent in a way. Um, and, and that's what allows these groups to, to network amongst each other and to sort of begin to see that they're not alone, right? That there's a, a, a whole movement going on here. And you mentioned this with this history, this grassroots history workshop movement or the history movement um they're just engaged in a in a huge array of a wide array of 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 memory work i mean they're involved in all kinds of different uh, could you provide a sense could you give a sense of what 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 are they doing what kinds of memory work are they involved with yeah interestingly um I don't think that that any of the people back then or even maybe today would refer to this as memory work because for them it was really historical research, uh, but historical research that was politically informed, um, emancipatory in the sense that, you know, they had an interest, they had a vested interest in making German society more democratic and, um, you know, facing up to the difficult episodes in the, in German history, um, so not to not to just celebrate uh, and gloss over the difficult bits, right? And um, so, actually, interest. What, what I thought was so fascinating is that these groups, you know, they really start in a very ad hoc manner, very project oriented. The funding is not consistent. They, they sometimes get some money, you know, for one project, or they just self fund, uh, and they'll investigate, you know what was this housing working class housing project that was built in the 1920s? You know, this was here. What's its history? Who lived here? Why did they build it? You know, what happened here during the national socialist period? Um, and because they're doing this in-depth research, going into the archives and finding things that, that hadn't been known before, 
they then often decide, well, we need to mark this, right? So they they almost always create temporary exhibitions and things like city tours, um, but they also often demand that something more permanent is put in place. Um, sometimes they demand a plaque or a memorial or they make it themselves. Um, and sometimes they, this leads to the creation of memorial sites. So then they collaborate with, with other initiatives that are also much more focused on the Nazi past and, and Nazi sites of terror. And, uh, you know, this is, this is interesting, right? Because they don't set out to memorialize. But actually, if you look at, you know, the, what was created in terms of memorial markers in the 1980s and then 1990s and who was the initiator is overwhelmingly civil society organizations that are behind it. And this is, this was something that when I started this research was not at all clear, right? You often, when you read accounts of how a particular memorial came about, um, the information about who was behind that drive is usually quite vague, right? They'll, they'll, it'll be in the passive tense, um, or you might be able to read who inaugurated a memorial, but that doesn't tell you who initiated it, right? And so that's where my research question basically came from, is you know to, to figure out what was the role of civil society organizations in all of these different instances. And I found that it was overwhelming, right? So many of these sites would not exist today without memory activists. How does that actually happen? Because you have these these history workshops where they're doing things locally. They're trying to give tours and remember, uh, uh, challenge uh, street names or bridge names or put together local archives or organize festivals or put on exhibits. How do they actually become involved in protest and, and uh, uh efforts that really challenge the dominant memory culture. Cause I think this is one of your main points that for, for, for values to change, you really need to unsettle people. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so, I mean, we have to remember that at this point, you know, it, it's maybe hard cause it, it wasn't that long ago. Right. But in the early 1980s, uh, the, vast majority of, you know, sort of public, the public landscape memory, if you will, uh, was um, not commemorating the bad elements of German history, right? It, it, I think for the most part, it was just very vague. Um, as I said, there was no outright denial. But A, there was, you know, a lot of this sort of, well, let's remember the victims of war um, without any any specific mention of who the victims were. Um, no remembrance of the perpetrator or naming the perpetrators, the Nazi perpetrators, and the and the uh, implication of the general population in the, in the Holocaust and in the war. Um, and also, there were still a lot of um, you know older uh, Nazi era or or you know imperial memorial markers around that had not been decommemorated. So the landscape itself was very different and. Um, when these kinds of groups started becoming active, they might not have, um, you know, intended to be protest movements, but because they immediately faced quite a lot of resistance from local government, uh, regional government, and federal government um, actors, they immediately were in the opposition, right? And of course, this was in the context of other social movements. So a lot of the people active in the history workshop movement were also active in the green movement or the peace movement, right? So that, there was a very strong sense that this government does not represent us. 
they are conservative, right? And this was the time when Cole was talking about, um, you know, being lucky to have been born late and not having to take responsibility for the Nazi past, essentially, and, you know, meeting Reagan at Bitburg. And these are the kinds of public events that the, that the federal government is putting forward. So these groups were very much feeling like they were in the opposition, which really helped them organize and, and galvanize support, right? People were quite outraged. And they, and it was, uh, they, they experienced this over and over again at the local level that they wanted to put up a memorial marker and were refused. And there was, um, you know, resistance to acknowledging the local Nazi past. So we have this, right? And so, so that the, the, the past that these groups are trying to commemorate are by definition oppositional. <clears throat> and, um, what they want to do is a very different approach, right? As I said, um, what we see at this time is very vague and um, non-specific, and um, also very centralized, right? The big memorials that exist to commemorate the the, the war, right? They're large traditional memorials, um, like the Neue Wache, um, or the memorial that that Kohl um, um, was planning in in Bonn at the time. And what the groups wanted to do differently is to say, look, we want to say who was victimized, um, which different victim groups were they, and also who were the perpetrators. And we want to show, um, you know, we want to show this in authentic places and not just in one central place in the, in the city square or in Berlin or in Bonn, right? Um, this needs to be part of everyday life. And we ne- you need to be able to encounter this history everywhere you go, essentially. So this idea of decentralizing the memorial landscape was quite important and, and that it's linked to authentic uh, elements of history and not just sort of glossing over uh, a general narrative. Um, yeah, so it was a very different approach. And um, I think, you know, the protest element comes in, A, because of the the subject matter, but also because of the immersement of this um uh, of these activists in the larger social movements, uh, in the larger social movement scene, where protest was just kind of the go-to way to to get things done. I was aware of things like uh, uh, the stumbling stones and uh, uh, other memorial initiatives, but I, I don't think I really appreciated how they were part of this new memorial aesthetic that that you discuss. It really seems to grow out of the the history the history movement. Uh, how how is the how does the the nature of which you memorialize the past? I mean, how does that undergo a radical change? And what are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, as as I mentioned, you know, it is a reaction to this um, very strongly felt um, rejection of the mainstream apo- approach that was still around in the nineteen eighties. Um, and so you have not only these civil society groups, but also a lot of important artists um, like uh, Gunther Demnik, who's uh, the the uh, person behind the Stumbling Block initiative, um, but also others, um, you know, who, who start to think about how can we make memory less, um, you know, less propagandistic or less uh, sort of imposed from above and more a, something that gets people to to reflect and to think through their own implication in history, their own responsibility um, for history and for the future, right? So how, how could memory um, 
unsettle as well, right? As you said earlier. And um, what I've sort of tried to do is look at what the outcomes of this of these movements, you know, in terms of their their memorial aesthetic is, and and you know how you could maybe tease out some key principles of this um, kind of civic Holocaust remembrance. And uh, as I already mentioned, one key principle is that it's decentralized. So um, these uh, these initiatives want to mark places. Uh, where history happened and not necessarily in, in, you know, central locations. Um, and so you get, you end up with a sort of network of memory, right? Which is very much represented by the Stolpersteine, by the stumbling blocks, because you, you just stumble over them wherever you go in any German city now. Um, you know, there are tens of thousands of them. Um, and they're, they're connected to, um, authenticity. So, Obviously, that's that's a problematic term, but um, the idea is to uh, mark and to stay as close as possible to um, historical facts, right, and to to historical places, um, and to yeah, kind of stay on a sl- on a small scale, right, not to to. Um, place really monumental uh, uh, memorials um, that kind of overwhelm the visitor, but rather to to try to create memorials that uh, evoke reflection in people. And this, I think, I mean, first of all, that's a reaction to the very monumental memorial aesthetic that the early Federal Republic pursued still, right, with these sort of, oh, let's remember all victims of of dictatorship and war uh, in one central location. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's to some extent also a reaction to fascist, um, aesthetic. Uh, and it's interesting to think, uh, I, I always like to cite this example when you, um, the most well-known, uh, memorial in, in Germany today, of course, is the Berlin Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, which is very monumental, right? It's very large. Um, it's in a very central location, and it doesn't really connect to authentic historical events in any real way. Now, that memorial was the result of a citizen's initiative, but it was a very small initiative. It was just a few people, really, and it was very quickly picked up by prominent political leaders. And a lot of the people I have interviewed from the, you know, who are part of the historical um the history movement and the memorial site movement were absolutely opposed to that memorial very much because of its monumentality and its lack of connection and the sense that if we plop plop a big monument somewhere, the risk is that German society will, will consider their job done, right? We'll think, well, you can't accuse us of not commemorating the Holocaust because look what, what a great big, Thing we've put right in our city uh, as the center of our capital, right? And so um, their point was, you know, that we, we can't have monuments that actually cut off debate. We need con- monuments that evoke debate. And and the last, uh, I think, very uh, <clears throat> uh, telling element of the of the memorial aesthetic of this movement is that it's very much tied to naming specific perpetrators circumstances and also the diversity of victims. So previously you might have commemorated, you know, all victims at a concentration camp site uh, and not named that, you know, gay men experienced something specific versus Roma versus Jewish victims, right? That that 
their experience and their victimization had particular elements. And that, uh, importantly, of course, um, this relates to current discrimination still, right? The fact that we didn't commemorate gay men and Roma for a very long time has to do with the ongoing discrimination of these groups in society up until the present, right? So that shows you how there's a link between this movement, between remembering the past and taking charge of the present and being a progressive force in the present, right? So it's a very, it's a very political move in a way. Okay. So with the, with the, the collapse of, of uh, East Germany, you have a whole new uh, group of, of memory actors who want to memorialize their own past. And, and it seems like what they do is very similar to, to what the history workshop movement, uh, what the history movement and the uh, history uh, memorial, the memorial site movement did before. Yet you mentioned that there's, uh, there's also a clash of, uh, between this new movement and the older one. Uh, in what ways are they at odds? Yeah, so, well, first of all, it's important to point out that um, these post-1989 memory activists that are trying to recall repression in East Germany, um, but also other elements of East German history, um, they're also uh, building on the actions of earlier activists, right? So we have early on, um, as early as the 1950s, um, activists... uh, commemorating, for example, the 1953 uprising, um, people who had fled East Germany after that uprising, uh, former political prisoners who had come to West Germany, right? So the very, very strong um, uh, interest organizations of victims of communism that are present in West Germany and that actually get cultivated, especially by conservative parties in the Federal Republic. Um, So, in a way, these are part of the narrative of German victimhood, right, early on, because um, communist repression is seen as um, as one more way that Germans uh, experience um, hardship, right, in, uh, together with the other topics like expulsion and, and bombings and so forth. Um, so the victims of communism are very much part of conservative politics, which is why once the um, left-wing approach to the past where where the Holocaust is centered becomes dominant, um, the remembrance remembrance of the communist past and communist repression in particular um, become sort of automatically suspect, right? Because they were used uh, or they're under suspicion for, uh, for possibly relativizing the Holocaust, right? Um, So there's that tension and, uh, the sense that if you uh, if you pay too much attention or if you give too much um, sort of public rec- recognition to victims of communism, that this might um, suggest that we're no longer um, uh, taking the Nazi past as seriously, right? So that there's a, a um, political issue, uh, and of course there is just a, a clash of. Um, political <laughs> affiliation between the activists uh, uh, of the victims of communism and the victims of Nazism. And this plays out in a very concrete way at some key sites like Buchenwald, like um, uh, Sachsenhausen, where they're both victim groups um, have a stake, right? Because those sites were used uh, uh, to um, 
first of all, as concentration camps under the Nazis, but then in, as Stalinist camps. And so there's a direct kind of competition between those groups and very, very personalized conflict. So, you know, a lot of this is, is really down to clashes between individuals and groups um, that make a sort of uh, global approach to the issue much more complicated. Um, but the way in which these groups operate, right, that they're civic, that they uh, are focused on um, um, doing historical research and marking sites is is quite similar. So I would say that the that the victims of communist repression uh, maybe have their main focus on achieving public recognition and commemoration, uh, and less so historical research, which is you know uh, flipped for the for the early groups of the 1980s of the historical. Um, of the history workshop movement and the memorial site movement, if that makes sense. But they want their own experience of, of, of victimization to be prioritized. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, by this point, so we're talking, you know, early 1990s, um, in a way, these, these groups, uh, the, the victims of communist repression have a great advantage, which is that the uh, memorial institutions that have now emerged have sort of a, a standard modus operandi, which which means that civil society is consulted as a matter of course, right? So um, where in the 1980s, the civil society actors had to demand that they would be heard and included in discussions. This is kind of how these uh, um, institutions now operate. So that's a great advantage. But at the same time, um, there is a level of suspicion because um, victims of communist repression uh, tend to be on the right. And um, there is sort of a standard, right, which which has to do with the geopolitical um, position that the United Germany is in, which is that it has to prove that it's now a trustworthy partner internationally and that it will continue to address its Nazi past and that it is no longer a dangerous state, right? And so um, it's basically... In a hugely underpinned with um, with state interest that the Holocaust remains the central focus of commemoration of official commemoration, um, which means that that any competitor that is automatically sort of in competition, right, feels in competition, um, and there's sort of a because there's that standard, you know, this is the most important um, victims of communism, you know, often voice the, the the sense that you know they're second class uh which of course i'm not uh, i'm not agreeing with here but that's the sentiment right that that um well you know if, if people were taking us really seriously we would also have uh, a, a huge memorial in the berlin city center and then then that would prove that german society is really taking our past as seriously but you argue that these East German memory actors, and you divide them up into different groups, right? The victims groups, uh, uh, you have uh, pragmatists, so people maybe who weren't, weren't even from East Germany, but uh, are interested in that past of dissidents and for for-profit groups. They, I mean, they undertake really important memory work that might not have been done um, otherwise. And they really preserve sites of memory. So some fascinating examples uh, um, wall on the on the berlin wall in particular uh um um uh, and i think your point that you finish with right is, is that um 
you 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 don't you have a dominant memory culture the success of the of the memorial history movement memorial site movement threatens to kind of stifle this this new group of of memory actors who who have an important contribution to make to uh, to the way not just the memory uh, work but uh, how memory reinforces democratic values yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I show with, with quite a few examples, a lot of the sites that are now um, state-funded or at least supported memorial sites uh, that that recall repression in the GDR would not exist today without civil society action. Um, and, you know, it was really the, the passion and the energy of mostly former pro- political prisoners who, um, you know, who can be credited with that. And um, I think that they do have a really important role. And as I said, this, you know, the fact that they're often pigeonholed as sort of right wing or, or conservative, at least, uh, means that we maybe miss the important role that they have. Um, because, um, you know, they, they, of course, are much, you know, well, in many cases, anyway, uh, we're talking about about a more recent past, a past that has is probably less well known, for example, to school kids in Germany, and so still has the ability to unsettle uh, and and you know get people to think through what it means to protect democratic values or what would happen, what would you do if if um, you know your democratic rights were being violated. And to what lengths would you go, right? Um, so, so even though, and maybe, maybe because it's quite controversial, um, and these sites are complicated places, I think they have great potential for political education. And, um, yeah, we, um, you know, I think, um, there's often, there's often sort of a reluctance or there's, there's a sense that, we now know how to do this, right? We know how uh, to run a memorial institutions. We know who to talk to. And we know how particularly to talk about the past in a very non-emotional, um, sort of relatively removed way. We know which words are appropriate and which aren't. And these actors from the GDR, from, you know, that, that are focused on the GDR past, sometimes violate those rules which are um, being upheld by the former activists of the 1980s, right? And and the, that's for good reason. They're being they're being defended because those activists had to push them through against uh, considerable resistance against the state that was not deeply democratic at the time. So you know, there's this tension between the activists of the 1980s and 90s uh, of that are focused on on the Nazi past. Who you know have good reason for thinking that that they need to defend their accomplishments, and then maybe it's a little bit in their in their DNA as well, right? From having done it for so long, um, there's a tension between them and these these newer actors that maybe have a different approach. They want to be more emotional. They think, well, you know, uh, we need to really um, uh, you know, drive home the fact how horrible this was and how, uh, what the experience was like for people. And maybe, you know, it's okay to overwhelm people sometimes with this. And yeah, so there's, there's this sort of difference in approach. And I think they often feel like, uh, the, the GDR, um, memory activists often feel like, 
uh, they're being sort of put into a framework that's not of their own making. So I think that's that's where where the tension often exists um, to this day. I mean, there are, there are conflicts between these different kinds of actors. Jenny, thank you so much for for taking time to speak with me I, today. I, I want to make sure I leave you with time to eat your lunch. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. And of course, as always, clear that, you know, if things are complicated, there's always more to talk about. Jenny Wustenberg is Professor of History and Memory Studies in the School of Arts and Humanities at Nottingham Trent University. She is the founding co-president of the Memory Studies Association. She is the co-editor of Decommemoration, Removing Statues and Renaming Places, Agency and Transnational Memory Politics, and the Rutledge Handbook of Memory Activism with Yifat Gutman. We've been talking with her today about her book, Civil Society and Memory in Postwar Germany. Next month, we'll turn to the first of two episodes on the memory of partition in India and Pakistan, some of the worst violence, and also some of the most dramatic demographic and economic changes that followed the end of British India and the creation of India and Pakistan happened in the Punjab. To look more closely at the implications of partition in the Punjab, we'll hear from historian Pippa Verde from the University of De Montfort in the UK about her book, From the Ashes of 1947, Reimagining the Punjab. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.